You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Hope you are all enjoying your kickoff to summer. We have a big all-new episode today. Uh, first stop is Argyle, New York. We sit down with farmer, owner, cheesemaker of Moxie Ridge Farm, Lee Hennessy. He talks about his work in the wine world, how he wound up raising goats, and what music he plays for the girls, a.k.a. the goats, as some of you might know from your favorite 90s track. And then we head to the other side of the world. We sit down with Scarlett of Teen Jesus and the Gene Teasers. Talk to us about their new EP, about playing shows in and around all Australia and their favorite things to eat while on the road. What they pick is definitely one of my favorite snacks. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on hrn.org. Don't get me wrong, you're pretty good for a girl, Ben. 
It's kind of complicated, you won't understand. Maybe you should try sticking to girl sports. And men would like it better if you didn't talk. Don't get me wrong, you're pretty good for a girl band. It's kind of complicated, you won't understand. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us in Snacky Tunes. Before we get into everything, let me ask, uh, how are the goats today? Uh, Goats are great. Goats are sassy and full of chaos. Thank you very much for asking. Mm, It's a real hot goat summer, if I I heard correctly. That's, That's the word on the street, and like, and everyone here is absolutely living it up. Um, you know, it's so rare that we actually get to have a first generation farmer on our show. Most mm. of the times it's people who've been born into it or come from it or started there, then moved to the city and then came back to it. What drew you to farming, especially now that I get to hear the crow in the background? I mean, that couldn't be more perfect. I that assume that's, probably, that, that, I assume that's what it is. Oh, that the rooster. rooster. Yeah, we have a couple of ravens uh, that come, but they're pretty quiet. But mainly, that's one of my like seventy thousand roosters. Not really everyone. My farm is very small, um, but we have a lot of roosters. They're all very nice. Um, I I had always like growing up as a kid. I'd always loved animals. I loved being around animals. And my grandparents, who kind of lived in the same town as me, which was a very suburban town, but had like kind of rested it out of agricultural hands the entire thing and um there was one holdout farm at the end of my grandparents street and i used to like Mm. go there and just like watch the cows like sleep um and i kind of just assumed that everybody liked doing that and you know i'd be an adult and it went from like you know being a kid in the back seat seeing cows and being like oh cows and then being an adult and being like oh that's a scottish highland i'm gonna like pull off and just stare at it for a bit um (laughs) And I just kind of assumed that that, you know, deep interest um, and fascination was something that all kids had and that you, you know, were supposed to grow out of it. Um, And even when I was younger, when I was like, I can be whatever I want to be, I'm going to work with animals. I never thought that you could just become a farmer. Mm. I, I thought. I thought it was just like a legacy, like, you know, it didn't, it didn't compute to me. It didn't cross my mind. Like, and so, you know, I was for a while, I was like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm, yeah, I grew up in the nineties. So I was like, I'm going to be like Jean-Jacques Cousteau. I'm going to be like a, you know, marine biologist. Sure. And then, nope. and then I saw the science that I would have to do for the rest of my life. Nope. And I was like, never mind. Hard I'm going to be an artist. Yep. Yep. Is um, the art- is the art in that sort of creative pull, is that what brought you to LA? Yeah, yeah. I had um, 
I have a, a checkered past of like a lot of different things, but I actually ended up going to a conservatory mm. for acting and I'm like squinting my eyes as I say it, but like I went to um, the Purchase Conservatory, which like at the time was a very big deal um, and uh, did that for a couple of years and just was 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 good at it, but was really unhappy in mm. like this very competitive place. Sure. Um, and then started working, you know, on the other side of the camera and doing a bunch of that type of stuff. Learned that I loved kind of putting things together, did a bunch of like, you know, indie theater type stuff. And eventually, you know, my whatever 24 year old ass was like, I like movies, but also money. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go make money while I make movies sure. in Los Angeles. Cause that's how it works. That's exactly how it works. You move to LA, you say, mm-hmm. I'm here to make the movies. And someone yep. goes, here's the money. Kid. Did you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just dis- yeah. 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 Discover and, you. Um, just real quick. Uh, how did that work out? Um, interesting. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I have arrived um, ended up like subletting with one of the like literal like creative creators um, of th- Dimension, um, like one of the people who like found the Scream screenplay and like put it together. Wow! Um, and that was wild. And I was like, yeah, that's part for the course. Everyone has this experience when in, in LA. Um, and he was like, did it turn to like be a writer and stuff? And I was like, I'm gonna work at a production company and like didn't get hired at 24 hmm. you're like kind of long in the tooth for those folks who don't know, I know. and I know. then so darren i literally worked in a mailroom hmm. i worked in a mailroom um and then became like an in-house like temp and then was an assistant and then was like a department coordinator which is basically like junior agent but they don't pay you like sure. junior agent so so um, not the money part that you were hoping for no the work part i got it i got the work part and not the we money don't part. have this money mm, i don't know what you're talking about no, no. that's the, that's for agents sorry um and then uh eventually once the recession hit um me and all the other coordinators got laid off and like in hollywood you know, you're supposed to, you know, work and network and all this. I was very good at networking just because mm. it was literally just like going out and enjoying a drink or food with a, sure. a new person. Um, it was like your podcast, but like real life. And I had to pay <laughs> for drinks. Um, yeah. But I, I was like, I was so burned out. And I was like, I don't want to make any of these phone calls. So uh, that's what when I was like, well, I don't want to leave Los Angeles. What can I do that's, you know, that I'm passionate about that other people think is awesome because that was very important to me at the time. Um, and also, um, like is something that I can actually accomplish. And I was like, obviously, uh, I have no training in it. I really know nothing about it. So I'm definitely going to go into wine. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I like, listen, a lot of wise choices in my background. A lot of wise choices. Now, look, I, I don't want to bury the lead because you eventually worked your way up to a level one sommelier, but how did you make that jump from 
you know, arguably knowing nothing about wine other than what's on the shelves at maybe Trader Joe's mm-hmm. to having, I mean, an encyclopedia of wine stored in your head. I, that concept of like, I don't, that's almost exactly what was going through my head when I was like, I really want to do this, but I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of wine. Um, And I basically, I'm a very stubborn person. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I want to work in this industry. Where can I do it to make me happy and everything else? And so when Mm -hmm. I started, I was like, well, I'll just basically take all my skills that I learned being, you know, an agent, but not paid as one, um, into, into wine. So I was like in California, you can, uh, do, it's called, uh, a wine broker. You get a special license for it and you represent wines, uh, but you never take ownership of them. So that means that you don't have to deal with a lot of red tape. Um, and so I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely going to be great. And, um, I, I did that and I specialized in specifically working um, with companies that I thought would be marketable to people of my generation. So at the time I was like 27 right. and I'm like an Oregon Trail millennial um, sure. and like just enough of us were at drinking age um, and I had had some experiences, um, mm-hmm. in like, you know, wine country and going out with, um, a bunch of people my age, late twenties at the time. And, you know, I was like, why aren't we important to you wine industry? So I mm. initially was like, oh, I'm just going to go in and, and, and be a wine broker and, you know, walk in and pour wines and talk about them and all of this stuff. And I then that. that, I mean, conceptually, so did I, but in practice, I hated it. <laughs> Cause it's cold calling and oh, then right. it's like such a boys club. There's a huge three tier system. That was kind of my first introduction to like our industrialized uh, food system. Mm. Um, and it's not the, uh, I'm in the Loire Valley. This person puts up 600 cases a year of this Sean and Blanc. And I mm-hmm. just know him on a first name mm-hmm. basis. It's mm-hmm. not that. No. And I mean, I had that with the, the, you know, I skipped over a bunch of like how I learned about it and all this stuff, not how I got to the, the, the like small A level, but like, you know, going out to the vineyards and meeting them and talking with them and, you know, setting their goals and all this stuff. But like, eventually I had those relationships, um, but it, nobody gave a shit, you know, they were hmm. like, are you, what we have on the, on the alcohol side of things in the food system is we have what's called a three tier system. And essentially it's meant for like middlemen. It's meant for distributors. There's a Mm. ton of legislation around because of prohibition. It's all like neo-prohibitionist type of stuff. Um, And at the time weed was like mostly illegal, but it was easier to sell weed in California than it was to sell wine. Um, Beer has different rules in many, many states, including California and New York. Um, but wine, uh, tends to be like treated like liquor. So it's very, very intense. And the companies that are able to like jump through all those hoops and have, you know, all the bonded warehouses and have the importer's license and the, you know, seller's license and the, this and the, that are enormous. And so what they'll do to, you know, a restaurant, if I'm like, oh, I think this restaurant would really like be down with these wines the 
guy from one of these big uh, distributors would go in and say, what do you need? You know, like, what do you need? You need, you need new, new menus. Oh, do you have a little menu holder? No, you don't have a faux leather menu holder. Oh, we got those for you. Like, we'll we'll give them to you for free. Like, Oh, what are you, what are you paying for your gin? Oh, you're just doing well. Oh, don't you have any, any name brand gin? Listen, if you buy our wine from us, we'll give you this, you know, we'll give you a better rate on our, on our well stuff. So there is very little incentive for these business owners that are literally just trying to get through with their restaurants to be like, I have to buy all of this stuff from a distributor. Oh, hey, yeah. hey, kid, you know, that's yeah. really cool. You know, I love that Paso is up and coming, but like, no, it's a no. No. So, so and that's. Mm-hmm. So you've sort of passed through the entertainment biz. You're doing the wine thing. You're throwing yeah. these pretty popular pop ups. Was that's the only way I could get these places to buy wine. Is right. Because like, you threw an event with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was farming always in the back of your mind? Were you still thinking about your love for that? Like, would you wistfully drive, you know, to, uh, Ojai and stare at the rows and rows Mm. of of vegetables or was it a little bit more like, man, if I could just get out of here, I could go do this myself. I still at this point, honestly thought that, you know, the way I felt about like working with animals and stuff was, was for children. I thought it was childish. Um, mm. I, I thought literally everybody felt this way. And like one day you become an adult and get a career nope. and nope. like, no, so, sir. no, turns out. Uh, and uh, like, so the, I basically like kept my habit alive mm. during this time by, I volunteered at a Marine Animal Care Center um, meet with my Jacques Cousteau, uh, you know, childhood dreams. And like, was helping to rescue like baby elephant seals and sea lions and all of this stuff. I've been able to like, you know, help treat and do like surgery on a 500 pound sea lion. Like it was awesome. But at no point was I like, I want to farm. It just was not an option. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm not a vegetable guy anyway. It's a, I'm more of a raiser, not a grower. So like uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was still kind of like, but at the same time, this was my first crossover with agriculture and small agriculture because I was going through the wine at the Mm. vineyards. Love it. Kismet. I know it. I mean, listen, I'm a bit of a late bloomer. It took a while, but like, Oh, it was worth it. And great wine in the meantime. And also I should probably say level one sommelier with the quartermaster sommelier is the, is like the, is, is not the highest level. It's like the lowest like pinned level. Um, I mean, you still know more about wine than the majority of America. Don't (laughs) don't play it down. Don't play it down. And it got you back into terroir, taught you about the land farming techniques. I mean, there's don't, you know, don't, don't besmirch what you've, what you've earned. You're 100% right. Yeah. So, you know, you sort of come to this realization that you can be an adult farmer and you can get into it. And I know that you you wound up moving back to New York to start the farm, but why not in LA? Yeah. I mean, you know, California. Mm. I mean, if not LA, like drive thirty minutes outside of downtown, and you got farm country as far as the eye can see. What brought you back it's, to the East Coast? I when I kind of like had in order for me to like get to the point where I even was like even considering being a farmer, like I really had to get to the end of a very frayed rope. So at this point, I'm like, 
I had left my consultancy because like the brokering thing didn't work. So I ended up being a wine consultant because like blogging and Twitter was still new. So people was like, who's this guy talking about this? Um, so I had done pretty well there. I ended up shutting that down um, and working as an executive, which was horrible. And so I'm at the end of this rope and I get called out to, uh, or I get offered um, a, a trip to uh, Provence through the French Tourism Bureau. They chose like seven people um, to send one person to each wine region. And with a site that I had developed at this at this company, we had a lot of readership. And so they reached out to me, especially with my wine background. So like mm. I got to go to Provence for free. As um, one does. As, as one does. As one absolutely does. I mean, it's like so privileged to be able to do that. I didn't have to pay for it. And mm. like, so I was there. Now all of a sudden I'm like, working next to or, 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 you know, or in people's workplaces. And when I had a day off, they were like, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to go, I want to go see where, where goat cheese is made. And when I went there, that's when I was, that's when everything cracked open. I was like, oh, you can just choose to be a farmer and it doesn't have to be this. And it doesn't have to be that. I like spoke to the woman through an interpreter, like, cause she didn't know English. I didn't know French. And she just told me how she built it. And so when I went back to LA, I was like, I love LA. I'm miserable out here. I want, you know, you don't farming in on the West coast is really difficult because of water. Um, and I wanted to be a little closer to my family. And I don't know, I think because it reminded me of childhood, I wanted to do it where I'm from and I'm from upstate New York and nobody gives a shit about upstate New York. And so I was like, you know, I, I want to like, I want to be proud of where I'm from and I want to do, you know, what I feel like I've been meant to do. So I'm an idiot and came back here instead of moving to, you know, <laughs> a neighboring state that has better regulations for cheese making. But yeah, so I came back and, and I did not tell anyone why I moved back um, in case it, you know, I failed at it. I thought it was really silly. Um, and the one, the one friend that I told was like, maybe don't do that. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'm probably like going to move to Hudson or something to like, you know, open a little wine shop. I mean, I just pulled whatever out of my ass. Um, That's how it works. That's what, that's, that's what being an adult is. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, eventually I caught onto that. Um, And then by the time I caught onto that, I didn't really need it anymore because I was just like working with animals. And, you know, at that point it was like either, you know, get another office job, um, and, you know, be like a hobby farmer, gentleman farmer or whatever, or, you know, I, at this point was like, I would literally rather shovel shit than like worry about the toner and a printer. So I chose to learn by working on farms and I burned through my savings. I burned through my credit. I burned through it all. Um, but I learned a lot. Um, and that's, those are the skills that I started out with when I, when I had the opportunity to start Moxie Rich Farm. Amazing. Well, let's take a quick musical break. And I want to talk about the start of Moxie Ridge. Uh, we have a song from the archives here on hrn.org. Margarita, salt the rim. Kick your shoes off and let me in. In the morning, when we're done. Text your friends. 
perfect as long as I'm not working. One, two, three, four. Can hell yeah. Five, six, seven, eight, nine times on the whip. One, two, three, four. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Lee Hennessy, farmer, owner, cheesemaker of Moxie Ridge. And so, look, it is one thing to go to Provence. It is another thing to burn through all of your savings and learn how to shovel shit at other farms. It is quite another thing to start your own farm because that requires land and, in your case, goats. How did you get both and how did you convince someone because you were out of money and credit mm-hmm. to give you the capital to get that going so land access for me was incredibly difficult and still you know that was only five years ago you know to this day it's the number one hurdle um and and one of the hardest to overcome for anybody that wants to start farming if you don't already have land Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and this was before everything went crazy with pandemic and land prices shot up and everything else. And and it was just, you know, I'm looking in two counties that were totally, you know, off the, you know, 
branded sexy radar. Um, and it was still really hard. I couldn't get a mortgage. I couldn't get anything. So what I ended up doing is I ended up, um, I mean, I was like, I was like, I, you know, I want to do a farm. I want to do a farm. And then I was like, well, it's just going to happen. You know, apparently years down the line, um, I had started cheesemongering, you know, to kind of like take the sommelier skills and move them over into cheese and stuff. And I was like, you know, I've got plenty of time, um, you know, to really refine my cheese making. I'll find another, you know, I'll find it like a high level cheese making job and I'll figure it out. And then, you know, I was actually looking for, uh, some acreage for my pet goats at the time and um like saw an ad in a newspaper wasn't the land that i wanted or got but these people turned me on to a private equity company um that does like a lease to own for farmers and that's their mission um they they did mainly for like farmers that were lo looking to expand. I think I'm one of the last new farmers uh, that they worked with because it's a whole thing. Um, but, you know, I basically signed a contract saying, you know, I'll, I'll behave as if it's my land. Mm -hmm. We'll make a purchase agreement, um, you know, based off of, you know, what's what I look like I'm going to owe at the end of this. Um, and in the meantime, my rent doesn't go towards the purchase and I pay all the taxes and I'll pay any of the, like, you know, e equipment breakdown stuff, all the maintenance, all of that stuff, you know, that that's was, on you. that was, that's on that you. was, yep. Yep. And that was my option. Um, and I took it, I took it. Hmm. There were, you know, there were folks at that organization that like opened a lot of doors to other organizations that were there to support farmers. Still to this day, I'm just starting the purchasing process through the FSA for my land. Wow. Um, but all of that sounds like it could be a, you know, not a great deal having a farm aside um, and all of the, you know, kind of industry and organizational support that I got. But let me tell you, we, we set the price for the purchase of this little 200 year old cottage and 46 acres in 2017. And like, my biggest concern was like, is it going to be seen as valuable enough for the purchase price? And now I'm like, yep, that's not a problem because wow. things here have just absolutely skyrocketed. I um, mean, I mean, you yeah. own uh, and look, we've already established it is not a gentleman farm, but the fact mm. to own acreage <laughs> in upstate New York post pandemic, which yeah. I imagine bucolic i haven't seen it but i imagine in nature as fuck yeah. uh people are like oh yeah 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 do you still want that and you're like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i do it's mine i do thank i do you. i do i do thank you so much <laughs> um and so uh, you know it you the goat farming was really specific about it um mm -hmm. and i know that you do have some crops and some other types of of um animals and 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 making but when you were doing your, you know, you're working on other farms, did you know you're working to that? Like, was it tough? Yes. Because obviously, okay, so you did. And so at that time, were you also learning how to, look, it's one thing to grow a thing, but you obviously have to sell it. And was mm -hmm. having something that you could turn into more of a product always the goal instead of just having yes. produce? I mean, the 
to be totally honest with you, as much as like, I, um, I mean, I love cheese. Like I love wine, you know, it's, it's, it's a living art. I'm completely obsessed with it, but in terms with how I really feel alive spending my time, it's working with my animals. And so Mm. I don't want to make light of, of, you know, of my cheese making and the cheeses that are made here. Um, but I do want to say that like in the beginning, it was like, I want to be making cheese, but when I really look at the two things, it's like the cheese is something I'm passionate about, but ultimately it's kind of a goat life delivery device. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not to say that like, I just did it because I just wanted to have goats. There's a lot of other stuff you can do if you want to have a goat farm you can do goat meat you can make when everyone's like oh my gosh i love what you do i want to be a cheesemaker too like my immediate response is like are you sure or do you Mm -hmm. is it just a delivery device like because there are ways to you know to achieve this if like if you're not super passionate about cheese it is not worth the regulations it's not worth the money i mean the just the equipment alone to start up a creamery and the types of you know floors and builds and drains and everything else that you need to have and anything that goes into your cheese room. I mean, it's, you know, if you do it super, super cheap, you could maybe do it for like $120,000. And that's if you didn't have to build a building. That's just to like, make the simplest cheese at none of the like, none of anything like it's just so regulated here. Um, because when we first started to industrialize, everybody was like, oh, let's do like big milk farms and like send the milk through these pipes that we never wash and like put them into, you know, these bottles and stuff. And all these people were dying and dying, botulism, everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. All of the stuff because of, of like of industrial production, like not, like not, not being regulated and not giving a shit, you know, to clean whatever it was. Um, whereas like, you know, in, there's a really big movement within cheese. That's like movement in quotes in that, like we all as, as cheesemakers, we cannot, it is illegal to sell cheese that has not been aged for 60 days. It is illegal federal crime mm-hmm. um, that you can sell raw milk state to state. It varies. Um, and you can sell stuff that's been aged more than 60 days, but you can't sell like within 60 days, which is of course ridiculous. Um, and the rest of the world has been, oh, I mean, you know, making and selling. Give it to me raw. Thank you so yeah, much. Please. Exactly. Go to Canada. That, Go up to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or, you know, go to a friend's house <laughs> who's not selling it. Um, but like, it's that, that like, anyway, so it's extremely expensive to do, you know, to do the cheesemaker thing. I am very stubborn and like, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, the place that I found, I had to find a place that was already like a creamery, already a business. Mm. Um, so, so the same I had to make where you just mm-hmm. sort of laid yourself, your business on top of existing business. Yep. Yep. It was like, does it have what I need to check the boxes? Yes. Okay. Let's go. Um, and, you know, it was always goat cheese for me from the beginning. Um, my biggest concern was, and I knew because I had learned about terroir through wine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I understood 
the concept of, you know, a vine that grows to be 30, 60, 100 years old, having a past, just like we as people have a past. And that like every season that passes, the fruit that grows on that vine that has a past is going to have different characteristics and then it's going to make different wine. And I was obsessed with doing that with, with goats, with living animals um, and, and focusing on, you know, pre-industrial, non-industrial types of farming, the way that people did it a couple hundred, couple thousand years ago. Um, and only, only focusing on stuff that came from in and around my farm. Um, so that was, that, that was the mission from the start. So when I started working on farms, it was on goat farms. When I wanted to learn about the, you know, how to support that farm with like what kind of products and stuff, I became a cheesemonger. Um, at a little place in Albany that is just such a gem. It was run by a guy named Eric Paul at the time um, called The Cheese Traveler. And I had, it was a masterclass. It was incredible. I learned about the industry. I learned about the cheeses. I learned about selling them. I learned about the customers. I learned about local cheeses. I worked my first farmer's markets at that job. It was like, yeah, I, I mean... I, I, I throw myself all in for sure. Um, you know, you're a new farm and you're mm-hmm. starting a new farm in a uh, area or at least a region that has generational farmers. Um, mm-hmm. How has the community been in accepting a new farm and what you bring with your wares and your mission because obviously mm-hmm. you have a very clear point of view about how you want to raise your goats and put out your mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. The, I, I found that when people saw that I was doing the work, I, I was very well supported. Hmm. Um, and ultimately like the, because the whole point of what I do is to raise my animals in a certain way. And, and part of that includes if I can't make it myself or, you know, if they can't browse it or graze it, goats browse, sheep graze, but you know, if they can't, if they can't eat it themselves from my land, I'm going to buy it from the closest place possible. And so, you know, by default, I moved in and immediately, you know, was supporting all of these other farmers in the area, you know, purchasing the grain or getting the hay for the winter time. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, when you, when you start showing up for them, you know, they'll talk, they'll talk about, you know, the new farmer, they'll talk about this, they'll talk about that. You know, I know for a fact, there was a story going, uh, like going around about me, like loading in literally a ton and a half of grain into a 2014 Jeep Patriot and like almost dragging (laughs) on the ground. Like, Mm. you know, like that's, that's what that was. Now, I'm a transgender man and I didn't come out um, or even realize that I was transgender until I was up here farming. Hmm. And so what my reception coming in was what they saw, which was, you know, they saw a very interesting, uh, very stubborn uh, cisgender woman, they thought. Um, And, 
you know, I, I kind of thought that like, oh, maybe my reception is going to be a little bit different um, because I did uh, start to medically transition, which of course you don't have to do to be trans. I chose no, to. Of course. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I did my thing, you know, in quiet by myself, just like I started the farm. And then eventually I was just like, oh, by the way, you know, we're switching it up. Um, I, since we're on a podcast, I'm, I'm white, I'm middle-class, you know, I'm a very privileged person and Mm. being a transgender man, meaning transitioning to a man, you know, quote unquote, um, quote unquote transitioning, um, the, that like, that's the, that's, that's the type of trans that gets the least shit essentially is what I'm saying. Um, so my experience from, you know, being out here and living in the country and stuff was all of a sudden, you know, I would stop getting shit at a gas pump if, you know, if I blocked another guy in, you know, it was like, <laughs> right. you know, before it was like, you know, it would be super stressy and it would be like, you know, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, let me try and, you know, let me, let me try and move it. You know, after guy was like, Hey brother, how you doing? You mind moving the truck? You know, it was like, it was totally different. Um, right. But in right. terms of community, <clears throat> it was very much the same. They saw that, you know, I'd been doing the work. Um, they saw I was doing the work. I was just in my little, we have a little tiny hardware store here in town, but they always have the shit that I need. Um, and, uh, and the Good guy that works then. there is another farmer. Oh, absolutely. Reads hardware, Argyle, New York. Um, and, uh, the guy that works there, Mike, you know, like said my old name or something, you know, when he was talking to another guy and like fix it immediately pronouns unlock, you know, it was great. So that's community. That's community. It is community. It is. I think that for anybody moving out, you know, to a rural area, whether or not you're going to be farming or whether it's going to be a farmstead or whatever, that like, it's very, very, very important and of course, this is just a piece of it. You know, you're like what you experience, what you look like, who you are and stuff that gets added in. But uh, for this side of it, it's just so important to learn from the community, respect the community. The owner of that hardware store was the person who taught me how to sweat a pipe. Now I do my own plumbing. Like hmm. the, if if you go in and you're not like, oh, these are dumb country people, you know, sure. Or like, you know, I have my thing to do and I'm not going to do it like them. Or I don't agree with, you know, the way that they do things, then obviously you're not going to make community. But if you're open to it um, and you get lucky with, you know, with great people around like I have, you know, it's it's pretty awesome. And they're, you know, are they like, hey, I can't wait for your, you know, super expensive, you know, not expensive, but like twenty six dollar a pound, which is not expensive in cheese. Um you know, big Ronda release, like, no, they're just like, where's the feta, you know? Right. And they'll just like right, pull right, up right. in the driveway and be like, do you have any feta? And that's it. I mean, but that's amazing to be, I think it cuts down a lot of stereotypes on both sides yeah. where you're like these yeah. upstate yokels and mm-hmm. then they're going like this woke trans person. It's like, no, mm-hmm. we're all, we all go to the same hardware store. We all have the same issues with land ownership. And small business. We're all doing the work. Yeah, we're all doing the work, mm-hmm. and none of us have a. Uh, you know, it's not like the the Hutchkins over there who are doing that gentleman farm who come up once every mm-hmm. month and never work their line. 
Never yeah, worked exactly. Exactly. Lighting fires during a burn ban. What the hell are they thinking? What are they thinking? Yeah. So look, I'd be remiss if we, if we had you here, we didn't talk about the cheese that you make. Um, Let's talk cheese. Let's talk cheese. So, you know, obviously this goes back because, you know, everything's such a clean through line. You were serving cheese during your early wine days. The narrative Uh is there, obviously (laughs) the hop, skip and a jump, but yeah, um, you know, you have a uh, a European appreciation for cheese coming up against American regulation. What are you putting mm-hmm. up? How far are you pushing the limits? What are you doing that no one else is doing? So the what we're putting up primarily when we started out, I uh, the I had a lot of experience farming and a lot of experience cheesemongering. I was only a home cheesemaker, mm-hmm. so I had the incredible good luck. Um, to, and by good luck, I mean like, you know, all the hustle that I learned in Hollywood, I would like, just, I was like, it's all for the farm, you know? And I like reached out and all this stuff, but I had the opportunity to work with a couple of phenomenal mentors. You'd asked earlier, you know, how I got my goats, my first, we've got a closed herd. I started with six goats that came with the farm. And then I bought babies from a place called Lazy Lady Farm in the Northeast Kingdom in Vermont. Mm -hmm. She became a mentor. She makes incredible bloomy rind cheeses. Um, I, the person that I ended up buying my fat pasteurizer from, um, has since retired, but was known for making incredible Chev. Chev is spelled S or C H E V R E. Um, Americanized pronunciation is Chev, but it's goat, it's fresh goat cheese. That's it. And, um, that's what she was known for. And so she taught me her ways. Um, and so for us, like the, the best way for me to start and to kind of figure out who I was as a cheesemaker, despite all of these dreams was to just start making fresh cheese. You have to start at fresh cheese. Like that's, Mm. that's, that's it. Um, and then once you have your, that's when you know your milk is good. That's when you know what milk you're working with. Like, you know, if I was like, hey, I'm going to make, you know, a, a sharp cheddar from my goat milk, like it would be a waste because my- right. Once you my, start putting rennet and other things in there, you're like- Well, just the profile of my milk, yeah. like the milk that I get. So I have mostly Alpine goats, which are a French breed, which is should be shocking to no one at this point. And they're known <laughs> for producing like a lot of milk, not a ton of fat, which is why you get very friable cheeses mm. um, in French goat French goat cheeses, but um, usually a very sweet character. And so our milk is like very clean. It's very, very sweet, um, you know, for milk. And so when, once I started learning about like, okay, this is what it is when we get the cultures in there, like when, when the, when the tiny critters start working. Um, And that's really where I started. I thought about what I was super passionate about, which was, you know, cheeses that have been around for, you know, a thousand years or longer, um, and, and trying to make them as much in, in the same way or learn, um, to do so like as I could within our regulations. Um, and so we, I started out with Chev and, you know, when I first started out, it was like, I wasn't, I wasn't a master cheesemaker. Um, I wasn't even a great cheesemaker, but I was a pretty fucking solid cheesemonger. Mm. So I would just make cheese 
every fucking day. And when it passed, if I was like, I would sell this at my cheese counter, like this is like passes the national test, that's what would go out the door. And everything else would be fed to the pigs and chickens. And so what, you know, after, after learning about how to do this, understanding how my milk worked, the expression of it, that's when we started moving into other stuff. But really until this year, we'd done some, uh, raw aged cheeses, big Rhonda was always a huge hit. Um, but like, we've really been focusing in on these fresh cheeses and, you know, it's like, Jesus fucking Christ, Lee, why are you obsessed with peasant food? Like, it's so hard to sell fresh chev. Like, you can't ship it. You know, people are like, oh, I had goat cheese in my salad in the 90s, and it was fucking awful. And it's like, yeah, yeah. it was awful then. Yeah, it was awful. You know, it was awful. Like, nobody gives a shit about this stuff, but I'm like, oh, it's like, it's one of the original cheeses in the world. Like, you don't need rennet. Like, it's elect, I think. No, nobody fucking cares. And so like, but I've been able to, you know, use that as a foundation still, you know, five years later, I'm still really obsessed with it. I'm very proud of our chef that our main, uh, but we focus primarily on fresh cheeses still. Mm. Um, this is the first year that we're going to be in, in earnest. This is the first year that we're going to be doing like raw aged cheeses at like at any scale. Um, but our, for sure, our best seller, and I have a bunch of very cranky customers at me right now, uh, because the release is late, but like our, our best seller, and I swear to God, Darren, if you were to ask me, like, what do you think your best selling cheese mm-hmm. would be, Lee, as a cheesemaker with your own farm? I definitely would not have fucking said a Bulgarian feta, but like, here we are. Hmm. Um, there we are. Uh, there, there we are. I'm obsessed with Bulgarian fed. I'm not Bulgarian. I just, I'm obsessed with it. And, you know, through the, it took about four years to nail, um, but we make a really good one. And that's like, that feta pays the bills. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Lee, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us. One last question. Um, sure. I know you played in a nineties alt rack cover band. <laughs> yes. Uh, what do you play for the goats from that era? Um, we definitely do like a lot of what the cover band played, which are like alt rock radio hits, but no super groups. Hmm. So like, fair call, fair call, like, like space hog. Um, maybe, um, like, County Crows is like a little big, but like that, that type of stuff. I mean, whatever was on the radio, to be honest with you at that time, whether it was pop or whatever, like the girls love nineties music. I will leave you with a story about goats and nineties music. Hit me. Um, so I was working at, this was my first management job. I was the assistant herd manager at this very well-known, um, uh, goat, uh, creamy cheese, cheese, uh, like cheese makers, all this stuff. And, uh, I had to milk. Now their milking parlor was like, not great. Their setup was not great. It took literally eight to 10 hours to, to milk these goats, which is a lot. Um, and I was 
like still learning my own herdsmanship at the time and all this stuff. And we only got, this was up in the mountains. We only got two radio stations. We got the top 40 country station, which I love me some country, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was like stadium country and literally the same seven songs over and over again. Of course. Or we did get like a nineties dance station. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, there's literally no, there's no choice. So on this cassette playing boom box that was like in the dusty ass creamery, I would play nineties music. And we had, their herd was a mix girls with horns, girls with not horns, but they didn't have a great headlocking system yet. So like some of the girls with horns would fit in where they wanted to go and some couldn't. And some girls were like, I have to be at this spot. When I say girls, everyone, I mean goats. Um, Some girls were like, I have to be at this spot. And like somebody else is there. I had one time where like, I let in the line of goats. So that's the number of goats that come in. And like, nobody was having it. They were just having a great time, like running around. Like this one goat was like, had her head stuck outside of the headlock. I had like these other two goats that were just fighting over one spot. I had another goat that was like, I've never jumped down from here. Let me check this out. And I just, I broke down. I was like, what is my life? It had to be two o'clock in the morning, Darren. And the entire time, all I could hear was, this is the rhythm of the night, the <laughs> night. Oh, yeah. So we do not, we do not listen to 90s dan- dance music Fair in the Fair enough. In the Fair anymore. enough. Well, if, if uh, Cody Rigsby ever makes his way up to the farm. He will have to get the note to uh, not do his dance appointments. <laughs> I mean, we can do it outside of the parlor, just not while I'm milking. Yes, yes. Well, Lee, thank you again. If people want to check out the farm or order some of your wares, where can they go? How can they follow along? Where can they see some of the girls? Uh, absolutely. Uh, website is moxyridgefarm.com. That's when we let everyone know, you know, when we're doing our releases and where we're shipping nationwide. Um, Instagram is always a good place to see the goats. And, uh, if you're in New York city, my ass is down there every Saturday selling cheese and meat. Where? In union square on, Mm. on Saturdays, eight to four. There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have, thank you. Yes, of course. My absolute pleasure. Uh, Song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. Times. Just this morning on the high line, every stranger humming to themselves. Might be the cure for it as myself. If nothing else, just a moment's distraction. From I can't get no descend that ain't just fit it in. I can't win. I sighed for you more than a thousand times. Last night under the moonlight, so many strangers run from one to another. I don't know how to string these lines together. But nothing else, just a moment's distraction. I can't get no and Just fit it in. I can't win. Oh, and I'm only stopping you to see if you could change up my whole life. Don't know, it's just something in your eyes. That's right, I haven't seen him yet, but we're talking now, and who knows how it works anyhow. Well, it works anyhow. 
Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Scarlett, thank you for taking the time to chat with us from the other side of the world. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Ah, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, in the States in the, the last year, there has been this crazy renaissance of uh, hardcore and punk and, and all that was sort of percolating under the surface, sort of breaking into the mainstream. You have Anxious, Home is Where, One Step Closer, Pink Shift, all these bands. Is the same thing happening in your part of the world? Um. Hmm. It's actually, I don't know. I find like, I feel like I find it hard to tell what's really going on in the music industry. I think because the shows that we play, we kind of see a lot of the same people like friends of ours and other bands and stuff. Um, but I don't always know like exactly how they're working in the, you know, the country as a whole, like the music industry as a whole. There's definitely a lot of awesome punk bands in Australia. Um, I think sometimes they get slept on a little bit because we're such mm -hmm. like an indie rock country. Um, there's a lot of like surf rock here. Um, but you know, people just have to wake up and smell that it's <laughs> punk is back and better than ever. 
Smelled the punk, baby. Uh, I love it. Um, Australia is such an interesting scene because um, the way I've understood is that like the cities are really tight knit and there's, there's a lot of um, bands and community within in the, in the scenes, but everything's so spread out that it's not the same as in America where it's like, cool, we'll just tour the Northeast or we'll, we'll just do it up and down the West coast. How do you connect or have you stayed in connect connection with bands, especially over the last few years? Um, do you mean like us with other bands or? Yeah. Like how, how is the Australian scene in the community? Um, how has Teen Jesus been a part of it? Um, well, I guess like, yeah, Australia is weird because it is so like, it's huge as a country, but the cities are really far apart. Um, mm-hmm. we do a kind of similar thing though. Like we do a lot of, um, like, I mean, Teen Jesus do a lot of kind of East coast tours. Just, um, but even then, like it probably wouldn't be the same as it is in America because we have to fly so far every time to get to a city and then there's just nothing in between. So I don't know. It's, um, it is really interesting going to all these different cities and seeing, how the scene is different there. Like every city is so different for music in Australia, which is really, really strange. But, um, you know, I think that luckily we're kind of, we're in a good spot where I feel like we're pretty accessible to a lot of people. <laughs> it's like, you know, that kind of like pop rock, like indie rock, but still rock. Um, so yeah, we, we make it work. It is interesting though. Like, um, like Sydney, I reckon has some great like punk bands coming out of it, but then like Wollongong, which is, sorry, getting a message from Optus. <laughs> um, yeah, Wollongong, which is like an hour down the road, we've got like heaps of, um, yeah, like surf indie bands here. Like it's mm. so different from place to place. Um, just about choosing the right venue, I guess, and that's what we pay a booking agent for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so great to know that there's community and that there is this openness when you get to the city. Um, and with the revival of, I mean... I feel like electronic music was was just reigning supreme for so long. It's so nice yeah. to see uh, rock and roll is back. And I think now part of what I think is that like post-COVID, people are like, I want to feel something real. Like I want to feel that energy. I want to see people um, connect. Uh, in the shows that you've played since everything's reopened, what is the response you've gotten from the crowd? Have the shows felt different? Um, yeah, actually like – mind-blowingly different it's it's been really strange um so our first show back after all the lockdowns and stuff was the start of our miss your birthday tour um Mm. and that was in it was in melbourne the first leg of the show and it was the biggest venue we've ever played headline it was like massive massive room and i'd had covid all week and got out of lockdown that day and flew straight coming out I got one stripe on my test, not two. Yeah. I'm coming. Yeah, I got one. It's fine. But no, like I got out that day, flew straight to the gig, and then we like we were just hiding in the dressing room the whole time. So like we won't oh go out God. too much. And then oh my god, like when we walked out, the amount of people there was fucked. It was just crazy. We were all like, "What do you mean that all here for us?" And they all knew all the words, and we hadn't played a show in like a year and a half. So it was actually crazy like we never ever ever would have played a show that size back before covid so it's been very Do you think strange. people had the time to discover and spend time with your music for sure yeah and i think that um luckily for us as well like we didn't get much radio play before covid and then because we released obviously like the singles leading up to the ep like r and mr birthday and yep. girl sports and they all got on um triple j rotation like you know triple j like obviously big australian radio it runs this country but um 
yeah, hey. like we got we got on rotation. So we had all these new listeners that had no idea who we were before and thought we were actually like a big band, but before that we were playing like tiny rooms. You are a big band. Gone. You are a big band. <laughs> no, we won't tell anyone. We won't tell anyone that you're not a big band. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're just like a really big band playing. Yeah, this is normal. This is normal. (laughs) i got to get into that mindset, get the right ego for it. Um, Oh, my God. Um, All right, well, let's hear a song first. We have Bull Dragon, uh, which is off the EP. Uh, What's the story behind the song? Um, So I actually didn't write the song. Jada, the beautiful bass player, wrote this one. Shout out. Um, Shout out. But, yeah, it's actually my favorite one on the EP. It makes me so happy. Like there's a bit where like we all sing in it in like a lot of these gang vocal parts. It just makes me also always so happy. I'm like, oh, my best friends <laughs> singing away. It's really cute. It's, yeah, my favorite one to play live as well, I think. Amazing. Well, here we go. Bull Dragon from Teen Jesus and the Gene Teasers live on Zaki Tunes on hrn.org. You scream. I shout, but I can't seem to get what's up. I'm angry, I'm lazy. Maybe I'm just tired, it's hard to tell lately. A little bit naggy, say sorry, a little bit lonely. And I get a bit mad, and I am a bit stubborn, a little bull dragon. You kinda like me, but you don't like me. Find that funny. I'm always in a daydream, mind in a haze machine, just wanna see clearly. I'm a bit too jealous, trying to careless, making my own mess. And I get a bit mad, and I am a bit stubborn, a little bull dragon. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Scarlett of Teen Jesus and the Gene Teasers. You know, thinking about the connection and the growth that you you had as a band over the break 
of COVID and people sitting at home is part of the message of your music. You know, I think a lot of people can look at like a female punk band and be like, oh, it's a novelty or like be really shitty about it um, or try to put it in a box. But the empowerment and the message you have, one, just being a human, just being like, you know, like it's a good punk, like, fuck you, don't put me in a box type of message. But then also with all the social changes and everything and the reexamining of gender that happened in like in the last few years, I can see why people really gravitated to your music. What has been the interaction with fans on that level? Have you seen people reaching out to you and saying your lyrics, your music really spoke to me and what I was going through? Yeah, definitely. We've, um, I mean, since releasing Girl Sports, that's kind of the first time that it's happened. Like, I guess, because our past releases, like, they haven't really been about anything. They're just kind of like, sure. fun, you know. And we try not to get too, like, angry, I guess, in our music because we're not really angry people. We, like, we don't normally put out that kind of um, – like image, I guess, but girl sports, we'd had enough. His <laughs> time was up. Yeah. It was too much. Um, but yeah, the response that we've had has actually been amazing. Like even before we released it and we would play it live and girls would come up to us afterwards and be like, what is that song? Cause that made me cry. And we're like, what, <laughs> why? Like, what? <laughs> but it's really cute. I think that it's, um, especially cause it's not even that like angry. Like we're not trying to get like really mad at anybody. It's just like kind of a fun, like, empowering kind of song you know like we're not here to rip anyone to shreds it's just we have fun playing it and it's it's good to actually tell tell people how we're feeling (laughs) for once yeah I mean punk has always been about either in a serious or satirical way holding up a mirror to society yeah and it's just nice to see that tradition continued and like we can have both we can have a super serious song that speaks to, to girls and, and what it is to be a woman and, and, you know, and then also we can have stuff about missing birthdays and yeah. <laughs> fun with your friends. Cause that's sort of some of the best type of pop music there is, is like the really fun, silly stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what we're trying to um, really put forward, like as a band, like we're not all angry and we're not all fit. Like we still have opinions, but we also want to have like fun songs and it'll be like lighthearted and I don't know, it's good to find the balance finally. Um, yeah, got, got a good mix now, I think, of <laughs> the themes in the songs. Mm, mm. All right, well, let's hear Mr. Birthday. What's the story behind this song, um, also on the EP? Um, so I wrote this one with um, Alex Leahy, who is a hero of mine. She's amazing. <laughs> um, Shout out. And we wrote it actually in lockdown. I went over to her house. I was staying in Melbourne for a while in lockdown, um, and I went over – yeah, to her her mum's house and we sat in their little studio and wrote this one. Um, it's about like when you're kind of moving out of home and you just like kind of want to be on your mum's couch and be like, oh, I'll never leave. But then also got to get out, <laughs> got to dive out and do your own thing. But it's it's hard to let go. I just want to stay on my mum's couch forever, really. <laughs> um, and the video is a pretty fun time too. Yeah, I love the video. Little schoolgirl outfits. It's so fun. Oh, yeah. We had a, um, a cameo appearance from Ben by from Slowly Slowly. Oh yeah, he's the teacher. <laughs> oh, how fun! Yeah. Oh man, I love it. Um, all right, well here you go, Mr. Birthday from uh, Teen Jesus and the Gene Teasers here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Scarlett of Teen Jesus and the Gene Teasers. Now, you formed in high school and you've continued on post-graduation. What's the transition been like? Have the relationship changed? Has everyone thought, well, this was fun in high school? Has it gotten more serious? Um, What's it like to go from sort of just like being teenagers into more grownups and still having the same band? That's a very good question, actually. No one ever asks this, but I feel like it's so, why wouldn't you ask it? Um, Definitely there was like a period there after high school when we were all like 18-year-olds trying to tour full-time. Tensions were high. We were (laughs) were at each other's Mm -hmm. throats. But I think that we've spent so much time together. Like we've all been best friends since we were like seven. So it's been a long, long time with each other. And at this point we're more like siblings than bandmates or friends so it's kind of easy like we could be so angry at each other and then be like it's fine like a second later you know so yeah um, it's definitely been an interesting one like we it took us a long 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 time to actually accept that the band could do okay I think we were just like no Mm. it's for fun we got a manager and we're like it's still for fun got a booking agent it's still for fun and then like the team started building and it wasn't until really I guess we started releasing the stuff for this EP that we're like oh it could actually be something (laughs) like damn it's not just a cute little hobby that we all do after school now um yeah it's been really strange like kind of um I don't know like I feel very privileged to be able to grow up in the same band and have those girls by my side forever forever um also I don't think that I could actually play music on stage without them there because I'd be too nervous without them (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're just so close that it works really well like um yeah, always in it together, which is good. And I have to imagine that that helped with the creative process, especially as you're trying to push yourself forward, knowing that you can trust the people in the room that, look, sounds evolve, people evolve, ideas evolve. Yeah. And absolutely. knowing that 
your bandmates support each other must help as you start to write new music and, and think about the future of what you want to do. Yeah, for sure. It's um, we're all very on the same page about it now, I think. And, you know, um, also we're kind of, yeah, we're so close that we never have any problems with like, I guess, like telling people like you don't like their ideas or like bringing a new one. Like we're never offended because we've, we're past that. <laughs> now, yeah. in addition to writing music, a big and being on the road, a big part of touring is deciding where you're going to eat. Who's the leader yeah. there? Do you guys cook on the road like a little Coleman stove or is it we're in this town, we've just flown here, we got to go get our favorite food? Um, well, personally, I love a good burrito. I think Neve does as well. We've been on the Cali burritos with the chips in them recently. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, the Guzman and Gomez. It's so good. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean – we can – Jada always ends up disappearing for a while and coming back with, like, a little paper bag full of granola or something or, like, sure. some apple slices. I don't know. She's in, she likes Whole Foods. But, um, <laughs> yeah, like, it's it's a group decision. But I like to think that me and Neve kind of lead it with the burritos. We're always like, no, no, come on. We're getting <laughs> getting a burrito. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big choice. I mean, I can't imagine you're eating that before you go on stage. Look – I wouldn't recommend it, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think the apples and granolas are better before going on stage than the Cali burrito. Yeah. We played in Sydney a few weeks ago and they, they're like, we'll provide a meal for you before you go on. Like, Oh, awesome. And they gave us these burgers and Oh my God, I thought I was going to vomit on stage. It was so bad. Like they were delicious, but then the amount of oil, I was like, like gagging Mm. into the mic. It was horrible. So normally I think a little snack before you play and then eat later. Go to the kebab shop afterwards when you're like, you know, you're Mm. already drunk and stuff. It's fine. Always. That'll, that'll never change at any age. (laughs) Once you're, once you see the night winding down, hold your local kebab and just, just all, everything. Extra white sauce, load it up. Yes, please. Give me the falafel. I don't care. Pile it on. I don't care. Oh, a little cheeky falafel that sneaks in there. You know, they shave it. I love it. So the EP came out. You're touring again. What's the next or the rest of the year look like for you? What can fans expect um, with Teen Jesus? Well, I mean, we're going to start. We're getting back into um, writing some fun little things, which is really good. We've kind of been um, so busy with touring that we haven't really had a chance. So that'll be really nice. We're just going to get away from everybody and everything and (laughs) hang out, which will be nice. Um, But apart from that big EP tour, we don't really have much in the works. Um, Yeah. I think it'll all kind of come to be as we, as we go on. We're not even a hundred percent sure what we're doing towards the end of the year yet either, but something good will come up. I promise. (laughs) It'll be great. It does. I think, I think the future looks bright. Um, I want to make sure that we have time for one more song, but if people want to check out the music or get the EP or follow along, um, where can they go to find you? Um, our Instagram is the easiest place just because we've got um, all the links on there. Also, you've got so much fun content on the gram. Also, TikTok mm-hmm. is, is booming these days. So, <laughs> How's your TikTok yeah. game? Uh, it's pretty good. It's I'm not going to lie. It's pretty good. <laughs> Are you um, – which type of uh, talk are you? Are you like a dance or do you have – is it uh, how to roll a Cali burrito? What are we looking at? Um, well, we've got a mixed bag because we're all logged in, obviously. So mm. Neve did her morning routine as the drummer of Teen Jesus yesterday. Um, 
Anna's done a few like very surreal skits on there. I did um just feel myself making breakfast. Our managers want us to do TikTok, so we were like, all right, <laughs> feel myself Everyone, cleaning. I don't know. <laughs> that is the trend. You do music, you also are a TikTok creator now. Yeah, apparently you're a content creator now, but hey, that's what it's like in 2022. <laughs> hey, hey, take what you can get. Um, all right, the last song we have is Up to Summit. Uh, what, uh, what can, what's the story behind this song? Um, well, I wrote this right after I watched Too Hot to Handle, so it's loosely inspired by <laughs> that awful reality show. Um, but the title, Up to Summit, is because Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys, whenever he says up to something, he goes like, up to summit instead of something. And so I thought that was funny, and it, I wanted to write an Arctic Monkeys-ish song. So there you go. I, <laughs> I got love a that. few Easter eggs in there. You got to have a little punk Easter egg in there. You got to do no it. Fun if, it's no fun if you don't. Well, Scarlett, thank you for making the time uh, for us. We're super excited. Um, The EP is fantastic. It's so much fun. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Thank you to Lee Hennessy for sitting down with us. Hope everyone has a great rest of your Sunday or week or whenever you're listening to the show. Here we go. Live on Snacky Tunes, Teen Jesus, and the Gene Teasers. Up to Summit. We'll see you next week. You must be up to something.
By Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.